When the Lord first came to Noah, the record being back in chapter 6, prior to the flood, prior to the building of the ark, prior to any and all of that, God came to Noah and he said to him that he would establish his covenant with Noah. And God made mention there at the very beginning of the covenant. However, over a hundred years of life has now passed for Noah. He has built the ark. He and his sons and their wives and the animals have all survived the flood. They have come off on the other side. And as of yet, God has not again made mention of the covenant that he promised to make with Noah back at the very beginning when he was first asked to build the ark. But what we have before us now as we cross into chapter 9 is we have the details of that covenant that God had promised that he would make with Noah. And so chapter 9 accounts for what that covenant is and what we see in the Noahic covenant, if we want to get technical or theological about it, is basically the beginning of human government and God giving Noah the clear, distinct, and repeated promise throughout the chapter that he will not again destroy the earth with the waters of a flood. And so God now gives to Noah the covenant of it, and so we see it. The two great themes of the covenant are, again, first of all, that God won't destroy the earth by a flood, and number two, that it's now man's responsibility to enforce judgment upon evil. Those are the great themes of the covenant uh, as we get into it. And so we resume in chapter 9, verse 1, and it says that God blessed Noah now and his sons And he said unto them, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth. Now, I find it interesting here that it says at this point and stage in Noah's life that God blessed Noah. Because what we know of Noah at this time is that he's already been blessed. I mean, if you're chosen uniquely of all the people that lived on a densely populated planet to survive the great judgment of God, you would consider yourself to be very blessed, wouldn't you? And Noah indeed was. We're told that he found grace in the eyes of the Lord. We're told in the New Testament that Noah already had exercised faith, that he was one that believed in God. And we're told there in that same verse in Hebrews that without faith, it's impossible to please God. So he was pleasing to God in the life that he was living, and God certainly had blessed Noah up until this time. But I find it interesting that now on the other side of the waters of the flood, God comes to Noah again, and there's a greater blessing, a further blessing that's bestowed upon Noah's life now at this junction uh, as God meets with him. Now, what we don't know is how this blessing was manifested. Uh, other than, of course, God speaking to Noah and establishing um, this covenant. But we do know that he's already saved, he's already obeyed, he's already been used, and he's kind of at a place in his life where there's a new beginning and a new start. For you and I, I think it's important that we remember, that we be reminded, that there is a blessing of God that comes upon our life And there's a continual blessing of God, and there's an increasing of the blessing of God as we continue walking with him and growing in him. Noah had already accomplished a lot. He had heard God's voice. He had seen the world buried and passed beyond him. And now he's at a new place, and there's new things now for him to do. There's new experiences for him to have with God. 
There's things for him to learn of God that as of yet he has not known. And God has more for him than what he has already experienced in the past. And the same is true for every child of God, everyone who's been purchased by him and that belongs to him. There is the initial blessing of salvation. There's salvation by grace through faith. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. There are gifts and a calling and a place. There's stability in the Word of God that's imparted. The Spirit of God is given to our life, and all of that is great blessing from God. But as we continue with Him, as we walk with Him, as we obey the things that He gives for us to do and asks us to do, there's an unfolding of even greater blessing in our lives year by year as we know Him more and more. I think of Abraham and how God came to him at the very beginning, as we'll see very soon in our study. And he said, in blessing, I will bless you. And God gives to him an initial blessing. But then at each stage that Abraham obeys God and walks deeper, God reaffirms and takes the blessing deeper than it had been previously. And he does that time after time in the testimony of Abraham's life. We see that with King David. God had called him as a young man and said, there's a blessing. I'm going to do this in your life. And as David obtained and reached the goals that God had laid before him, there was further and greater blessing that was laid out before him for his future. And we see that over and over again with the people that God calls and the people that God chooses. And it's true even for us. And so what this challenges me is that I'm not to be stagnant in my Christian experience. I'm not to receive the initial blessing of God, receive his salvation and his initial grace, go so far and then say, well, this is all there is, God. No, no, no. He's infinite. And therefore, there's always more of him to know and more for him to give and to impart and more for me to do and be and become. And so I'm called to respond to God constantly. And the outcome of that is that the blessing of God will grow and increase in my life from now until the day that I see him face to face. And so let the word of God search us at the very beginning tonight. Where are we at? Have we grown stagnant? Have we come to a place where we say, God, I've come so far and I'm content to stay right here? Or do we in our hearts want to say, Lord, give me more. Let me know you more. Give me new vision and new revelation. Give me new challenges Give me new territory and more places to tread upon that that land might be given to me as well. There's no boundaries with God and there's no boundaries of his willingness to impart more unto us as he does to Noah even here. And so God bless Noah and he gives him the command to be fruitful now, to multiply and to replenish the earth. In verse 2, he goes on and now he expands upon what he wants to say to Noah. He says that the fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every fowl of the air, upon all that moveth upon the earth and upon all the fishes of the sea into your hand are they delivered. And so God says from this point onward, there's going to be in the animal kingdom, in the created beings other than man. There's going to be a fear and a dread of you that I have put there, that they will regard you and they'll fear you. I'm thankful for this. Sometimes you're out in the woods and you see things or you encounter things and to realize like, okay, God, you said you've put a fear and a dread in them of me and of us. You know, I used to work down in the city and I would work alongside people there that had never been out of the city their whole life. 
And when they would learn that I lived way up here in the middle of the woods, they would say, aren't you afraid at night like that a bear's going to jump out and eat you or something? And they were serious. I mean, these are guys that carry knives around and are, have scars all over their body. And I'm looking at them saying, you think I'm afraid of where I live? You know, you should be afraid. You're in greater danger down here. You've got men. But no, God has put a fear. And unless an animal is sick or feels threatened in some way and is fierce, God has put a fear of them. And so we don't need to be afraid of them. And then God says this in verse 3. He says, every moving thing that lives shall be meat for you, even as the green herb have I given you all things. So this is the first time now that we have man in a carnivorous state. All the way up until the flood, man did not eat meat. He ate only vegetables. Isn't it interesting that the whole world was corrupted by a bunch of vegetarians? I know, it's sad, isn't it? You almost think it could have been different. It didn't have to be that way, you know. But now God gives them meat to eat. But with this restriction, he says, but flesh with the life thereof, which is the blood thereof, shall you not eat. In other words, you're not to eat something alive. Don't just grab something and chow down, no matter how hungry you are. And don't drink the blood of it. God respects the blood of a creature because he says that the life is in the blood. That's a concept that carries through from Genesis all the way until Revelation. God respects the blood. He speaks of Abel's blood as saying that, Abel's blood, though he is dead, it yet speaks. And we know that the blood of Christ being the life, the ransom that was spilled out on the ground so that you and I might live. Jesus holding up at the cup and saying, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. And God giving honor and esteem to the blood says, you're free to eat meat, but it's to be drained of its life and you're not to partake of that. I remember Georgia and I being in Chinatown a couple of years ago and going into one of the Chinese delis that were down there and just seeing the things that they serve and that people were buying and eating. And there was this big brown brick that looked like tofu in one of the buffet trays. And I was thinking, what in the world is that? And I looked and I saw first the Chinese inscription and then underneath was the English. It said, baked pork blood. Can you imagine? And I thought, I don't think we're supposed to eat that. I mean, that's just wrong on like three levels, <laughs> biblically, you know. First of all, it's pork. Second of all, it's blood. You know, it's, this is just wrong, you know. But it was interesting to see. God puts a restriction on that. He says, don't eat the blood. And then he says, and surely your blood, that is your life, will I require, and then in three ways will I require it, at the hand of beast, I will require it, At the hand of man, at the hand of every man's brother, will I require the life of man. And then he says what he means by that in verse 6. Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God made he man. So what God is saying to Noah here is that although you do have the right to kill and eat amongst the animals, you do not have the right to kill innocent man. And if you're found guilty of murder one, intentional murder of man and spilling man's blood, then your blood will be required at the hand of that. And God says it will happen in one of three ways. One, by the beasts of the earth. I will remove the fear and the dread of you from them and they will take your life if need be. 
Number two, at the hand of man, that is at the hand of human government. Capital punishment being instituted by God here in the case of murder. Or, number three, by every man's brother, he says also there in verse 5, speaking of what the Bible calls the avenger of blood. It would be honor slaying. If, you, if someone in your family was killed or murdered, it would be your distinct honor, not honor, it would be uh, dishonor to the family if you didn't avenge their blood upon them that killed him. And so God says that if someone is found guilty of murder one, then whether it's by the government of man, or whether it be by the avenger of blood, the family, which happened in the Bible, we'll be reading certain places, or whether it even be by natural things, God turning the earth against those that are guilty of this. God says, whoso sheds man's blood, by man his blood will be shed. And then he gives the reason why. He says, because man is made in the image of God. There's a clear distinction in the scripture between man and animal life. And I think it's important that we understand that. We're to respect the animal kingdom. We're to enjoy what God has made them to be. But pets, animals, are not people. And God makes that distinction. He says that we've been made in the image of God. And therefore, God holds us in that place. And he holds us responsible for the blood of men. Now, this is not a prohibition against all killing. There is a time to kill. The Bible even says that in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. This doesn't mean that in a time of war, when you're protecting or defending or fighting for a cause, for justice, that it isn't righteous, that it isn't right. We see that in the Bible. And so this doesn't mean that. And so war is excluded from this. Obviously, capital punishment is excluded from this. And so there is a time, but what this is speaking of is murder. And there's a big difference between killing and murder. And in the case of murder, man's blood is to be shed. But then God says in verse 7, he says, But you, be ye fruitful and multiply, bring forth abundantly in the earth and multiply therein. And so God institutes now and gives to Noah and his descendants the responsibility of self-governing. Man ruling over man. And God then gives a lot of latitude within that for man to develop the systems and schemes whereby he will govern himself. And throughout the history of man, there have been many different forms of human government whereby this has taken place. And I'll just give you a hint. Every one of them ultimately will fail because man was not intended or made to be able to govern himself. We were made to be in a relationship with a holy, all-knowing, all-capable and all-powerful, omniscient God who would rule over us and that we would be in submission to him. But in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they brought upon themselves self-governance. And God has resigned man unto that, and he will allow that until every form of human government fails, including the Constitution of the United States of America, as glorious as it is. They will all ultimately fail. But God gave man that covenant of governing over himself. And then he concludes it by saying, as he started with, be fruitful and multiply abundantly in the earth. Now, I think what God is trying to get across to Noah in this is that he wants Noah to understand 
that although the world has fallen, although it's flawed, although man is flawed, yet God is still sovereign, God is still in control, and that Noah doesn't have to worry about multiplying in the earth. He's able to go and do and be what God created him to go and do and be. And I think that's a fitting word for you and I. It's something that we need to remember, is that God, though he has placed responsibilities on us, and though there are vulnerabilities that come with being citizens in this earth, yet God wants us to go and be fruitful and multiply in the things that we've been made to do. Now, in a literal sense, of course, we're to procreate and have children and fill the earth. And trust me, I've done my part and I'm doing my part in that, <laughs> as are all of us. You know, we're doing it. But I think it goes beyond that as well. God has made each of us for a purpose. He's given us things in our hearts and in our minds. He's given us talents and works that we can do with our hands. And he wants us to trust him and to be able to go out and step out and to do those things without fear that because of the fallen world and the circumstances of it that we're always going to fail and that we should sit around and do nothing. No. We're to trust him, especially as Christians, because he blesses the works of our hands. And so a venture in business or the feeling that we've been called to do something, but it takes a step of faith. God would encourage us to take that step of faith, to move out of our comfort zone and to find the thing that we were made to do, to be fruitful and abundant and to multiply in that purpose that God has laid upon our hearts. We cannot live in fear of the unknown. We must trust him that he's leading, that he's guiding, that he's sovereign and that he's good that he can bless. And we live and move in those things that he's called for us to do. And so he says in verse 8, that God spoke then unto Noah and to his sons with him, saying, and I behold now I establish my covenant with you and with your seed after you and with every living creature that is with you of the fowl of the cattle and of every beast of the earth with you from all that go out of the ark to every beast of the earth. And so God announces the fact that here is the covenant now. And the first thing that he gives us is who the covenant is for. And he says it's for Noah, his sons, and all of their descendants. So that includes each of us even here to this day. We are all participants and beneficiaries of this covenant that God made with Noah. Also the animal kingdom and all animal life, they are included in this covenant. And so the who of the covenant is given to us in verses 9 and 10. This is who it's for. What is the covenant? One verse. Verse 11 gives us the entirety of the whole thing. He says, and I will establish my covenant with you. Here it is. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. Isn't that comforting? We can go home tonight, we can lay our head on the pillow, and we can trust that rain and fountains of the deep are not going to fill the earth to the point where the whole thing is drowned. God gives his promise, he makes it abundantly clear. Next time he destroys the earth, it's going to be by fire, <laughs> and it's going to be under much different circumstances, and there will be no survivors <laughs> on the other side of it. Uh, as there was. But it says now in verse 12, in verses 12 through 17, now God gives us the sign of the covenant or the seal of it. And it says that God said, this is the token or the sign of the covenant which I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for perpetual generations, all the way until the end. 
I do set my bow, the rainbow, in the cloud, and it shall be for a token of a covenant between me and the earth. And it shall come to pass, when I bring a cloud over the earth, that the bow shall be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. Now, to you and I, we look at this and we say, okay, well, it's not a big deal. We've all seen rainbows. We know what they are and and the whole thing. But for Noah, this had to be an incredibly comforting thing for God to say. Because what God knows here that Noah probably doesn't yet is that rain is going to be a common occurrence from now on. And can you imagine Noah coming off of the ark and establishing life, and then all of a sudden he sees clouds forming overhead and he feels a drop on his skin? What is he thinking? Lord, you told me the first time, what did I do? You know, and the whole thing. But essentially God is saying, no, no, it's going to rain now, and water is going to become kind of a common thing, and even localized flooding might be an issue from time to time. But I'm not going to do again what I did in judging the earth by water. And the sign of the covenant is that you'll see the rainbow in the clouds. And when you and I both see it, it will be a remembrance to you and to me that this is not battle. Same word for bow is used for a bow and arrow. This isn't battle. This is provision. And so verse 15, he says, I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall no more become a flood to destroy all flesh. And the bow shall be in the cloud, and I will look upon it, that I may remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is upon the earth. And God said unto Noah, this is the token or the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is upon the earth. Now, what's amazing to me as I look at this whole covenant and what God spells out for Noah here is that he spends two verses telling him who the covenant is for, one verse telling him what the covenant is, and then six verses telling him about the sign of the covenant that will be, that is the rainbow and what it will represent and what it will do for God's memory. And I sit back as I study this and I look at it and I say, God, why in the world did you, it seems disproportionate. Like, why so much time on the sign? And I don't know the answer from the perspective of God and what he was thinking. But the best that I can surmise is that God wants you and I to be certain and sure that when he speaks a word to us, even if it's a one-verse word, even if it's just a whisper or an inclination in our heart, or whether it's something that we see on the pages of Scripture, that he is absolutely more concerned with his ability and his promise to fulfill what it is that he has spoken than the size of what is spoken itself. God is always going to come through on his word, whether that's in the macro of the big picture or the micro of our individual lives and situations. God is going to keep his promises. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that all of the promises of God are yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And if he's given us a written promise in the logos of the word, then we can be certain that he's going to fulfill that. And even if there's a promise that he's spoken to us individually, I know that I have them, things that God has spoken to me, promises, things that he's made, things that he's said, even spoken without saying, I promise you I'm going to do this, but things that he's just spoken. He is going to fulfill the things that he has spoken. 
And he wants us to rest in that and to stand upon his word. Faith, the substance or the substrate of things hoped for, we can stand upon what God has said. And thus he gives him the token, the sign of the covenant. And so the sons of Noah that went forth from the ark were Shem and Ham and Japheth. And Ham is the father of Canaan. Canaan being one of the four sons of Ham who will become a key figure in the account that is coming. And thus he's mentioned here. And it says that these are the three sons of Noah and of them was the whole earth overspread. And so every one of us here is a descendant of either Shem, Ham, or Japheth in some way because the whole earth then being populated by the sons of Noah. And then in verse 20, we move from the covenant to now an account of what happened in Noah's life during the remainder of his years and then the subsequent fallout from that in his family. It says in verse 20 that Noah began to be a husbandman or a man of the earth, a gardener, a farmer. And it says that he planted a vineyard. Now, what was it like for Noah after 100 years of shipbuilding to now come off of the ark and have to start completely over, having no raw materials or resources, nothing that he can apply himself to. He's just starting completely from scratch in a whole new world. And so the best thing that he can do, we've got to eat to survive. He becomes a gardener, a farmer. And in that, he plants a vineyard. And then it tells us in verse 21, it says that he drank of the wine and was drunken, and he was then uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, one of Noah's sons, saw the nakedness of his father, and then he told his two brethren that were on the outside. And Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both their shoulders and went backward and covered the nakedness of their father. And their faces were backward and they saw not their father's nakedness. Now this is an amazing thing that happens, a glitch, a fault in the latter years of a man who was greatly blessed by God and a man who was greatly used by God. We're told, first of all, that he planted a vineyard. Now, there's no problem with vineyards and no problem with planting them. We're told also that he then drank of the wine of the vineyard. And again, no problem with partaking of the fruit of the vine in his vineyard. No problem with the drinking of the wine. But then we're told that he became drunk. And in that now, we do find that there is a problem. No problem with vineyards, no problem with wine in and of itself, but the Bible absolutely forbids drunkenness. We're not to drink ourselves into a place of intoxication. He drank, he was drunk, and then that drunkenness led to Noah being then uncovered in his tent. And no further detail given to us, but the implication is clear that there was something immoral about the position that Ham found his father Noah in as a result of his drunkenness. Now, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, gives us the word very expressly and clearly. Paul the Apostle said, Be not drunk with wine, but rather be ye filled with, or in the continual tense it is, be ye being filled with the Holy Spirit. Now you say, what's the reason that the Bible forbids drunkenness? The primary reason is exactly what we see here in the account of Noah. is because of what it led him then into because of his drunkenness. 
It is a fact in every life and in every experience that alcohol does a few things to a human body, to a human being. First of all is what it takes away. Alcohol, when consumed in excess, short circuits or removes from us our ability to think and reason clearly and soberly. That's why we call it sobriety versus drunkenness, and the two are in contrast. We lose our ability to reason things out in a proper way considering all the facts. It also takes away from us our inhibitions. So often when you talk to someone who did something very stupid with their life, there's almost always a confession that there was some intoxicant involved, that their inhibitions were removed in some way and they did something shameful or something damaging because of it. It also removes good judgment, the ability to judge what's the best thing to do in a situation. It takes wisdom away. Now, it doesn't just take away Alcohol in a human body also adds something to us that wouldn't be there otherwise. It adds a false sense of strength. Have you ever heard of beer muscle? Guys go out into a bar, they drink a little too much, and all of a sudden they can conquer the world. And they're out trying to lift up cars and fight people that are too big and too strong for them. It fills them with a false sense of strength that they can handle and take on more than they can. And that leads to all kinds of problems in the false confidence that that strength adds. It also gives a false sense of security. In forgetting the risks that are involved in certain behaviors, because reason is taken away, a false sense of security is then replacing it and think, I can, I'm invincible. And I can do things... That, why didn't I think about doing this before? This is such a great idea, you know. And all of a sudden, I have this false sense of security that everything is going to be okay no matter what. There's no consequences for my actions. And those people do things that get themselves into trouble because of a false sense of security. And it also adds, thirdly, a false reality. Now, I hate to even almost say this in church, but have you ever heard of beer goggles? You know. Things look differently when someone is under the influence of alcohol than when they are otherwise. And I I say that kind of tongue-in-cheek, but it doesn't just apply to the way another person looks. But things look differently. Life looks differently. There's a false sense of reality. I think myself to be other than I am. I think a circumstance to be other than it really is. I think of the outcome of actions to be other than what they really will be ultimately. Unless someone gets behind the wheel or somebody starts playing with a gun or somebody... I mean, the, 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 the stories are as numerous as there are human beings of the things that people think that they can do because their sobriety has been hindered by taking in too much alcohol. And so it takes away what we need. It adds to us what isn't real and isn't there. It leads to trouble. And beyond all of that, alcohol in excess is addictive It's binding, it grabs a hold of a life, and it's ultimately destructive. Many lives have been ruined and destroyed because of it. And ultimately then, it leads to greater levels of sin as we see illustrated in the life of Noah here. He didn't stop with just being drunk in his tent in a way that it would only affect him. 
but it went further to a place where he then offended God with his behavior and then stumbled his son and brought shame upon an entire lineage of humanity. And all comes back to this event right here in Noah's life. It's an interesting thing. I'm probably not alone in this, but um, there's a history of alcoholism in certain parts of my family. I don't think it hit me. That wasn't my struggle prior to coming to Christ, at least not yet. Maybe it would have been, Lord saved me when I was 19 and I had a lot of sinning to do uh, had he not interrupted my life when he did. But I know my family. I know my mother's side and I know my father's side and I know who does what and, 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 you know, what is this whole thing. And, And what I observe is that in certain parts of my family, there's a high level of functioning alcoholism. We grew up going to Christmases and Thanksgivings and birthday parties and family picnics. And, 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 and to me, I didn't even know what was going on, but boy, my family can drink. But never in all of the years growing up do I ever recall anyone being drunk. There was never someone stumbling, never someone slurring their speech, never someone getting angry or getting loud or getting caustic or rude or violent. There was none of that. It was just mirth. You know, there, and this whole thing, and, and, and I recognize it now and I see it and, I, and it still exists in the family that they can drink and, and it doesn't have this terrible, horrible effect on them. And you could almost think, well, wow, well, that's a, a, that's a person that is, it should be, it's allowed, it's all good. Here's what I see now that you couldn't have seen or figured then, is that though, our, though there are aunts and uncles that can handle, there are now cousins, nieces and nephews that have serious problems. And that's a reality. Maybe the effect on the one generation or on the few isn't as severe as it is in the lives of others, but the effect that it has had on their children and now their grandchildren is very definite and very real. And the thing that we've got to understand in the things that we allow and in the things that we do is that we do not, listen, we do not just sin unto ourselves. When we sin... Even thinking, well, I can handle it. It's okay for me. It always affects someone else's life as well and not just our own. And we see that here in the life of Noah and we all have seen that in the lives of people around us. One of the things, and I'm not a self-righteous man. I'm not saying this because I don't sin or I'm better than anybody else. But because I am a pastor and I've recognized from the very beginning of understanding there's a calling. The Bible forbids me from drinking alcohol. Paul said to Timothy, he said, Timothy, a pastor is not to be given to wine. And I took it seriously early on in my days as a Christian. It's just, this is not going to be something that's a part of my life. I'm choosing to set that aside for the sake of the call. And I didn't really have much of a desire for it anyways, ever, ever since the Lord saved my life. But one of the things that I am very blessed to be able to give my kids is that they will grow up and they will never, ever have a memory of seeing alcohol in my home. Now, that doesn't mean or guarantee that they're not going to drink or have a problem with alcohol. They very well may. I pray in Jesus' name that it doesn't happen. But at least I will know that that didn't come from me. It didn't come from my house. It's not something that they learned or saw growing up. 
And that's the value of seeing into the future, understanding that our kids, our grandkids, the people that are close to us, they're going to follow the example that we set. And it is absolutely unnecessary for us to allow some things in our lives, even when they are allowable. I ask you this tonight, not because this isn't legalism. I'm not trying to tell you that you shouldn't drink or that it's wrong for a Christian to drink. We all know that that's not true. But I ask you this question tonight to search your own heart and just to ask yourself before the Lord. What is the reason, if I drink alcohol, why I drink alcohol? What's the reason why? And what I would submit to you is that if the reason why is because you want to unwind or you want to relax, or you want to forget, or you want to cover over, or you, know, or, or you want to buzz, then what I submit to you is that you are not allowing God to fill a part of your life that he wants to fill and satisfy that that thirst and hunger is not there. In Ephesians 5.18, when Paul said, don't be drunk with wine, He immediately follows it with, but be ye filled with the Spirit. Meaning that God wants to fill every part of our life and satisfy every need that we have. And anytime we turn to any physical substance or physical thing to fill a need within our life, then that's an area of our life that we're not giving God access to to fill and to be what he wants. I think of the account of the woman at the well that met Jesus in John chapter 4. The Samaritan woman who had had five husbands and the man that she was living with was not her husband. She got into a theological discussion with Jesus about where Jews and Samaritans should worship and what's the true place. And Jesus cut right through to the core and he got right into this woman's heart and he basically essentially said to her, you're looking for water, that's why you're here, but I have water that you can drink that if you drink it, you'll never thirst again. I can satisfy you in a way that nothing you've ever done in your life has been able to satisfy. And I have that capability. And without missing a breath, she replied and she said, Lord, evermore, give me this water. Give me the thing that will satisfy every thirst and every need. And Jesus ended it by saying, I who speak to you am that Messiah that can fill all things. And the most remarkable verse and statement in that passage in John chapter 4 is that that woman left her water pot at the well and went back into the village. She came seeking satisfaction. Lord, I need this filled. There's a void. There's something empty. I need this thing filled in my life. And after an encounter with Jesus Christ, she said, whoa, I don't even remember what that was. I left it there. It's gone. I don't even have it in my hand anymore. She was so affected and changed by the one who fills all things. Maybe that's something to just pray about tonight. Maybe it's not alcohol. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's another dollar or another car or another possession or another relationship. What is it in your life and in mind that we seek satisfaction from that ultimately can never satisfy? The first commandment is the most hopeful thing in all the Bible. It says, you shall have no other gods before me. What's a God? It's something that we lean on or look to or trust in to meet a need that we can't meet ourselves. It's what a God is. We're leaning on something higher than ourselves. And if God declares that we're to have no other gods except for him, then that means he must be capable of meeting every need that you and I might ever have. 
And so what do we do if we have a need that we're trying to fill with something else? In faith and trust, we bring it to the foot of the cross of Calvary. We lay it there and we say, God, I don't know how I could live my life without this thing in it. But I trust you that you say that you're God of all things. And if you can fill the thing that I'm trying to satisfy with this substance or this practice or whatever else it is, then I lay my life before you and give you permission and place to be all that you want to be in my life. And the Bible says that God will answer that prayer and he will meet you there where you are. But it's faith, trust, and surrender. That was the sin of Noah. Now the sin of Ham and of Canaan. The text, the story goes on to say that Ham saw the nakedness of his father and then he came and told his brothers that were on the outside. Now the implication in the Hebrew behind the word saw is that he saw with glee. That he didn't see with compassion, he didn't see with a sense of shame or a sense of let down for his father's sake, but he saw with a sense of glee. And when he came and told his brothers, the implication is that he told them with disdain and with rejoicing. And the idea behind what Ham is doing here is not only is he disrespecting and disregarding his father, but what he's doing is he's making excuses for himself through the fall and failure of someone who professed the knowledge of God. And then he's publishing it to those and letting the story be expanded. It's the propping and elevation of self against the failure of another and the justification of sin because of some weakness I've observed in the life of one of God's people. And it's a big problem for Ham in this whole thing. It's self-exaltation. It's self-justification. And the Bible says that God hates this. God hates gossip. He hates backbiting. He hates slandering. What this is called is character assassination. Perhaps you and I have you know, been a part of that before. You ever been assassinated in your character? Someone says something about you to someone else that slanders your person and your reputation. Or you have done it. I know I'm guilty of it in, in, in times and places of saying things about people in a way that assassinates their character. Maybe even justifiably, but nevertheless... Character assassination is a great sin against two people. Number one, it's a sin against the person who's being maligned because their reputation is now tarnished. Their weakness and their vulnerability has now been published and told to someone else. The second person that it's a sin against is the person that's hearing the report about another person. And the reason why is because it's impossible now to unhear the things that you heard. And it's impossible, short of the grace of God, to look at the person you heard something about and to see them the same way that you did prior to hearing the thing that you heard. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? And it's a horrible thing when you look at someone that maybe you once respected or maybe potentially could have respected, but now because of something you've heard, you cannot any longer listen or see that person without that report coming into your mind and having that label somehow branded upon their life. When I was a new believer, I used to love listening to the Christian radio station. I didn't care who was on it. I didn't care if it was a Catholic priest, a Pentecostal nutcase. I didn't care. I was getting something out of it. If it was from the Bible, I would extract something from it. 
But little by little, over time, the critics begin to shout their opinions. Oh, you listen to that guy? Let me tell you about him. And then they give you their lowdown. Oh, you listen to him? It won't be long before you hear this. And little by little, I found that I could listen to less and less. And you know who was losing out in that deal? Me. Because before I was receiving from so many and so much was being added to my life. Now it's, oh, I can't listen to them. If I listen to that, I'm going to become like that or, or some kind of thing. God hates it. Now there is a time when it's important to report and to say something, maybe that someone is doing or something that so, something someone has done. If someone's safety is in danger or if the person is a leader and people are in danger of getting hurt, then yes, there's a time. Paul named names. He talked about Alexander the coppersmith, he said, who did much damage to me in the Lord. There's other times when names are named in the Bible of people that were toxic, people that were damaging, people that had the potential to defile others. And so, yes, there is a time and a context wherein things should be spoken. But perhaps we talk a little bit more than we should about people in a way that maligns their character in an unnecessary way. The Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, that love covers a multitude of sins. The Bible also says in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 13, that a talebearer reveals secrets, but he that is of a faithful spirit conceals the matter. Paul wrote to the Galatians in Galatians 6, verse 1, and he said, if anyone is overtaken in a fault, then you which are spiritual, restore such a one. In a spirit of meekness, considering yourselves, lest you also be tempted. That's the way that we're to handle the things that are, 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 are brought before our attention, whether intentionally or by accident. We're not to publish it abroad and malign people's character and gossip about the things that we see in their lives, but we're to conceal the matter. We're to let love cover a multitude of sins. If necessary and possible, we're to restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. Jesus would say concerning a sin in someone else's life that if your brother sins against you, then go to him, just you, and talk to the person about the issue and get it resolved just between the two of you. If he won't hear you, then take one other person with you that in the mouth of two witnesses, everything can be established. And then if that person still denies, then you get the rest of the church involved. You say, well, in most situations, none of that's necessary. Then that means nothing is necessary. Shh. Shh. Keep it in. Love covers a multitude of sins. And what we see in the sons, Japheth and Shem, is that they weren't even willing to look upon their father's nakedness. They stopped their ears, as it were. They walked in backwards, covering a garment, not even wanting to look upon the vulnerability and the nakedness of their father. There was a respect. There was esteem. And that's what we're to have towards one another, not propping ourselves up, not justifying our position on someone else's vulnerability and weakness, but recognizing that we're weak just as much. And someone could say the same things or worse about us if they had the occasion or if they knew what we know about ourselves. And so we're to love one another. It's so important. And so the sin of Ham in doing this to his father. Now another problem with Ham's gossip, Ham's backbiting, Ham's maligning of his father's character, here's the other problem with it. It's verse 24. It says that Noah awoke from his wine. 
Now, mark that, highlight it, and underline it in your Bible. Because everyone awakes from their wine in the Lord. Now, it might not be wine. It might be something else, some other sin, some other weakness or vulnerability. It could very well say here, Noah awoke from his anger management problem. Or Noah awoke from his overspending habit. Or Noah awoke from his... Because listen, the Bible says that he that began a good work in us is faithful to complete it until the day of Christ, right? And there are things in our life that are constantly being changed and rooted out of us. And eventually we wake up, don't we? And we see our weakness and what it is. And so Noah awoke from his wine. He came through it. He got out of it. God brought him up. And the amazing thing is that once he did... It says that he knew what his younger son had done unto him. And there's an amazing thing that happens is that when we come through something and we go through things, on the other side of it, we know, don't we, who treated us in what way or acted towards us or thought of us in what way while we were going through those things. We know who loved us and who prayed for us and who carried us through it spiritually. We know who saw it, and yet we're gracious enough not to embarrass us or say something about it, but we're patient. And we also know those who were exploiting a weakness that they saw in us and using it to their advantage or using it to hurt us in some way. If anyone ever comes to you and begins to gossip or malign or talk about someone else's sin, understand this, is that that same person that's doing that in front of you will also do that to you. If they're willing to talk about someone else to you, they're willing to talk about you to someone else. So don't receive it. Walk in backwards. Cover over with a garment. Say to the person, can I quote you on that? <laughs> and see if the conversation continues. Love covers a multitude of sins. He knew what his younger son had done unto him, and so thus his response in verse 25. And so he said, Cursed be Canaan. A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. And God shall enlarge Japheth, and he shall dwell in the tents of Shem, and Canaan shall be his servant. So God, or Noah now pronounces a prophecy upon the destiny of his sons and upon Canaan, based upon what happens in this, in their true characters being revealed. It's amazing he begins in verse 25 by saying, Cursed be Canaan. He doesn't say, Cursed be Ham. He says, Cursed be Canaan. You say, Well, what did Canaan have to do with this? Well, obviously, he had something to do with it because he's brought up three times in the, in the account. And thus, Noah sees something in Canaan, or he had a part in it, where God, through Noah, now curses the line of Canaan and says that he will be a servant of servants and a servant to both Shem and to Japheth specifically. Now, Noah had four, I'm sorry, Ham had four sons, not just Canaan. And the other three were not cursed. And Ham is left completely out of this. Nothing is spoken concerning Ham, the man himself, just concerning Canaan, his son. Now, it is true that Canaan became a servant of servants, and he served both Japheth and he served Shem. Now, the descendants of Shem became the Shemites or the Semites, the Semitic peoples, the Jews and the Arabs. Japheth became the father of all of the European nations and those that moved to the north, then the northwest, and the northeast of the Ararat area where the ark had landed. 
And what we know is that the Canaanites became slaves to both the Jews, as we see throughout the Bible, and that the Phoenicians, who were descendants of the Canaanites, became slaves also to the Greeks, the Persians, and the Romans. And in 146 BC, when the Romans destroyed Carthage, the Canaanites were ultimately eliminated and destroyed. So what does that mean? It means there's no more Canaanites in the world today. So the curse that Noah pronounced upon the descendants of Canaan no longer exists in the earth. And Ham is just omitted from anything being spoken about him personally. And so nothing for Ham, but Shem, blessed be the Lord God of Shem. Noah pronouncing upon the descendants of Shem that it will be through them that the blessed Lord will be manifested and revealed. And thus through the descendants of Shem will be Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, David, ultimately Jesus Christ. The promised Messiah will come through the seed of Shem. Japheth will be enlarged and certainly the European to the Russian to the even Asian continent, they were the largest as God says here that they will be enlarged and they would be and that they would dwell in the tents of Shem. I find it interesting that Shem would have the upper hand spiritually, even though Japheth would have the upper hand numerically. Japheth would ultimately have to submit to Shem's God because he's the true and the living God. I also read and I found it interesting that God used the language of Japheth as a chief instrument in the recording of the scriptures. The Septuagint being the Greek version of the Old Testament and the Greek language being very instrumental in our New Testament, and thus Japheth dwelling in the tents of Shem, even as it says here in the passage. Amazing how the word of God just so much tucked into so little, isn't it? But it says that Noah lived after the flood for 350 years, and all the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. We'll resume next week. We're a little behind. Chapter 10, read ahead. It's the table of nations. What happened to the descendants of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and where did they go? Called the most accurate description of where the nations and their borders ended up ever given. It's recorded here in the earliest pages of the Bible. And some interesting characters to meet. Nimrod, Eber, the father of the Hebrews. Uh, We'll breeze through chapter 10 and get into chapter 11 uh, in our study next week. Now, we'll spend the majority of our time next week in chapter 11, which is the Tower of Babel. Awesome, awesome passage. Very prophetic, very significant to the days that we're living in right now. You don't want to miss the Tower of Babel, but we'll get into that next time. Let's close in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you tonight for your word. We thank you for how it speaks to us. We thank you for the the truth and the clarity that it gives us for our lives. And, oh, Lord, we know that we need it. And so, Father, we ask tonight as we look at this passage and we examine these things, oh, Lord, we pray in Jesus' name, first of all and foremost, that your blessing would continue in our lives. Oh, Lord, forgive me and forgive us where we've gone stagnant, where we've set Christianity on autopilot, where it's just become a part of our identity and not the whole. I pray that tonight, even tonight, Lord, you would revive us in the Spirit. That you would give to us again a passion and and a fire for the things of eternity. That we would seek with all of our heart the blessing and the greater blessing of God in all that it is. Lord, revive us. Fill us afresh and anew with your Holy Spirit. And tonight, Lord, we also ask, as we have heard from your word tonight, 
Oh Lord, that there's things that you have for us that you want us to do, that we would have courage and faith to step out. Oh Lord, for some maybe here tonight, there's a career calling, a change, the venture, the desire to start a business or to start a family or to do something new. Lord, I pray in Jesus' name that where you're leading, you would embolden those purposes. Oh Lord, we also heard tonight from your Spirit that there are things in our life that you want to fill that we're seeking to satisfy in other ways and false means. And tonight, Lord, we want you to search our hearts. We want the light of your word and of your spirit and the gentleness of your voice to address those things. And Lord, we want to know the satisfaction of having living water that will cause us to never thirst again. And so for whatever that is right now, in every life here, we ask with one collective voice and by faith in Jesus Christ that you would make us willing to lay down those things that hold us so tightly and that you would fill those areas of our heart that we're seeking to satisfy with yourself. So Jesus, we're professing you as our Lord. We're asking that you would be our King and that we would be completely yours. So please, Father, tonight, let there be an Ebenezer stone. Let there be a mark in the ground, a monument erected, that we might say, Lord Jesus, have all of me. I want to know you completely. And so, Lord, please, tonight, make a change. Be born in us. Rule in us. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Tonight, if you want the expression of what God is doing in your heart to be something physical, the altar is open. As we close in song, if there's something that you just want to say, Lord, I I don't know what to do with this, but I want to do something with it. I'd encourage you, come lay it spiritually and visibly, but yet with feet to faith, before the Lord, before his feet. Say, Lord Jesus, change this, fill this, cleanse this, Lord. Move me, change me, revive me, Lord. I need you. I need you in my life. No one will bother you. Just come, spend your moment, talk to God, and then return to your seat, you know. Let's close in song. Shall we stand?